Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host Carl Za. Today is April first, twenty twenty, and we will continue our Taiwan history series. Uh, last time we had the, our returning guest,、um, Taiwanese communist rapper Comrade Shang Yu, on the show. Welcome,、uh, Shang Yu. Hello. Good to be back. Yes,、uh, you know. Immediately after our recording last time, I actually became sick.、Um, I don't know what I have. I I don't even know if I have. I actually caught the coronavirus、uh, because I just I, I I have all the symptoms. I was I got a fever, scratchy throat,、um, you know, muscle fatigue, and I was basically bedridden for three days. I, I right after our recording finish,、um, and thanks thanks to my girlfriend Ani who took care of me, I I am now mostly recovered. I think eighty, I'm eighty five percent. I'm well enough to record another show.、Um, so I I'm glad that、uh, you know you, you have the time、uh, to make this happen. You know, let's just get this wrapped up because we. Cover a lot of ground last time.、Uh, we covered from the prehistory of Taiwan all the way to、uh, the Japanese occupation and World War Two, and we're we, we're gonna we're gonna pick up today is we're gonna pick up from the post World War Two situation both on the Chinese mainland and Taiwan, and. To just、uh, give a, a overview for our audience,、uh, you know, World War Two, it really changed the geopolitical balance of the world, and U.S. had a grand plan for the post World War Two world. One of which is that the Roosevelt administration at the time intended for a Jiang Kai Shek led China. To be basically the U.S. client state in East Asia, a proxy, if you will, or、um, you know, junior partner, as、uh, a, a, a euphemism. Basically, what Japan became. Yes, yes. So,、uh, but that plan unfortunately did not pan out,、uh, primarily because the incompetence of the Jiang Kai-shek government and. Of him losing the Chinese Civil War immediately following World War Two,、uh, to to let, just、uh, give a little、um, uh, a background. In 1945, in 1944, during the very end of World War Two, when、uh, you know Nazi Germany was basically collapsing, and and the Japanese Empire was on its last leg.、Uh, What the what the Japanese Imperial Army decided to do is to、um, do a last ditch effort to,、uh, because he was losing the war badly in the Pacific. A lot of the Japanese shipping back to the home Japanese homeland was getting cut off,、uh, you know, from from the Japanese colonies in Southeast Asia. So what they intended to do is. To link up, establish overland links. At the time, Japan controlled most of northern China and some coastal strips in southern China, in places like uh, 
you know, uh, Shanghai, Zhejiang, and Guangzhou, uh, and Hong Kong. Um, and, and Japan still control Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, and much of Southeast Asia. So what Japan wanted to do was to establish overland rail links uh, by pushing through, uh, pushing through the, the, the area still controlled by Chiang Kai-shek. Because at the time, uh, the U.S. Air Force actually field many bombers in China itself. We talk about this uh, on our last show. We, we talk about bombing of Taiwan from, uh, from the Chinese air bases. Uh, and this was carried out uh, during the latter stage of the war when U.S. planes, bombers, would take off from South airfields in southwestern China and start bombing Japanese-occupied areas including areas of China uh, and as well as Taiwan and Japanese homeland. And to, I think to everybody's surprise, um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's KMT force suffer a spectacular collapse. Uh, I mean, in Chinese, this is actually called Yu Gui Shang Da Kui Bai. Yi is a Chinese name, uh, an ancient Chinese name for Hulan. Gui is another name for uh, Guangxi. And Xiang is, a, is another Chinese name for Hunan. So basically the three provinces that was the main theater of the Japanese Operation Ichigo campaign. And, and uh, you know, the, 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 def- the Chinese defender actually put up a very dogged fight at the uh, at the place at the city a Hunanese city called Hanyang. Um, the defender held out for over a month, uh, despite overwhelming Japanese numbers. But uh, be, you know, due to the nature of Chiang Kai She's army, uh, even though he had many men nominally under his command. None of these KMT general wanted to rush in to rescue the defenders in Hanyang because they don't want it to weaken their own forces, which is you know how they derive their power. In the end, you know the Japanese army achieved their strategic goal of linking up, uh, basically from northern China all the way to Vietnam, the real link, and the Roosevelt administration was sorely disappointed in Chiang Kai-shek and they uh, then enter secret negotiation with Soviet Union with Stalin to invite Soviet to declare war on Japan because they realized okay that the war might last longer than expected and as a result of that um, the Soviet Stalin demanded a couple conditions one is that the outer Mongolia, which is nominally still part of China, would be allowed uh, full full independence, and also the the form the Soviet Union will gain the former Russian uh, trade privileges in Manchuria. I mean, basically, northeast China, aka Manchuria, will become a return to being a, a Russian sphere of influence after the war. This was undone after um, Zhou Enlai and Mao negotiated in Moscow and signed the Sino-Soviet um, right. But that that came later, right? So yeah, so yeah. during the World War Two, that was the deal that was wrapped up, 
So um, as a result, and I wanted to, I want to add to sorry I want to add to the audience that it was really on Stalin's involvement in the Pacific theater that really forced Japan to surrender. Yes, because um, yes. it wasn't the atomic bombs. The atomic bombs were in, were primarily dropped to show Stalin um the U.S. might. They, and they picked Hiroshima and Nagasaki because they were the only two cities that hadn't been conventionally bombed yet. Yes, basically. because um, you know, U.S. was conducting the the Pacific campaign, you know, island hopping, getting closer to the Japanese mainland, and uh, you know, then then there was extensive air campaign against Japan. So, like you say, the only few Japanese city was spared. You know, one of the few city was. The ancient Japanese capital Kyoto, because at the time, uh, uh, you know, the State Department had a, a Japan expert who advised against bombing Kyoto because of the 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 the, the, the symbolic value and the ancient artifacts, and uh, you know Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, and and uh, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan in August in the in the so-called August storm when a million red army uh, went across Siberia invaded uh, Manchuria from all fronts including uh, the side of Mongolia from outer Mongolia and very quickly uh, in, in, in matter of a month you know Soviet red army took over the entire entirety of of manchuria north of the great wall and and of course that also prompted us to drop the atomic bomb forcing japan to surrender and the soviet agreed to stop their advance uh at the 38th parallel in in korea so korea so yes. they, they that's part of why um korea even though it was a victor nation was divided as opposed to japan because it made the division in germany as bad out, it turned out eventually made sense because germany was defeated during world war ii it the fact that it happened in korea just kind of shows that um Korea. It, it demonstrates the geopolitical importance of the Korean Peninsula, which we'll actually get into despite this episode being about Taiwan, because somehow it ends up playing a huge role in Taiwan's um um fate after um, all Chiang part of got the home. Grand Cold War, right in East Asia, is yeah. all connected. Because this is we're talking about the front line of the Cold War in East Asia. I mean, originally, I I don't think the you know the neither Soviet Union nor U.S. care about Korea too much. There was a, a, a decision to kind of divide up the, the sphere of influence. And, and uh, I mean, Stalin did not want to jeopardize the ties with the United States. So even though the Soviet Union actually has the boots on the ground, so to speak, you know, the, the Red Army pushed from Russian Far East into Manchuria down to Korean Peninsula, but they agreed to stop at the 38th parallel, to, you know, to allow the Americans, to, you know, to come in to ship in the 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 the, the, the their their you know their their South Korean proxies and take over the South, and and in doing so. You know, one one result of that is, you know, in, in South Korea, a lot of the old Japanese colonial 
structure got left in place. So basically, the Japanese have departed from Korea, but all the former Japanese, uh, all the former Korean collaborators uh, were... They were the new people in charge. Exactly. They were left in charge in the in the U.S. controlled part of the southern part of the Korean Peninsula. And we'll talk about that. This later. is very important to tell about to tell to certain um, people in Taiwan who um, they think that the um, the Cairo and um, Potsdam Potsdam um, communiques and declarations are invalid with their. Um, they have their historical revisionism and their reasons, but um, and, and they said that Taiwan should have been um, a you a, a trustee a what is it a trusteeship yeah of the UN like South Korea and they said that that would be so much better than Chiang Kai Shek, but I beg to differ. I mean, I feel like it would probably be that's a lot of legal. I mean, okay, who did who did who, who did the U.S. put in power in South Korea? Syngman Rhee, and then what, what happened after him? Park Chung Hee. I mean, the 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 thing is at. Uh, as we mentioned before, you know, at this point, Chiang Kai-shek was still U.S. chosen boy, you know, um, you know. That quickly changed, and we should get into that yes, soon. Yes, because, because, you know, in the post-World War II order, U.S. still envisioned uh, Chiang Kai-shek led a KMT control China as a U.S. proxy. So to do that, uh, you know, Japan had to give, first Japan had to give up all its possession uh, all the all the uh, colonies he gained through war, you know, way back, you know, all the way back to first Sino-Japanese War. So Taiwan was included uh, as a as a territory that Japan must give up. Taiwan and Korea. And yeah, we mentioned this in the last episode. Yes. If um for listeners who don't know, we can go into a lot more detail than we're going to go into today. Yes, and uh, because of that, you know, even South China Sea. You know the 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 claim. You know now, U.S. is making much uh, ado about the you know the, the so-called Chinese claim on South China Sea, that the nine dash line that claims uh, two thirds of China, South China Sea. The claim actually originated with Chiang Kai Shek because <laughs> right after World War Two, you know Chiang Kai Shek drew a map, uh, drew a eleven dash line across South China Sea, basically. Uh, you know, at the time, Japan had to give up all its uh, claims on, on in the islands of the South China Sea, and Chiang Kai-shek decided to move in. And this time, Chiang Kai-shek was backed by U.S. government uh, because, you know, like U.S. through land lease agreement, give Chiang Kai-shek a bunch of ships and allows, you know, Chiang Kai-shek to sail his uh, navy, uh, you know, putting territorial boundary markers all over South China Sea. It was okay by U.S. back then because Chiang Kai-shek was U.S.'s boy. And, you know, at the time, the, the, all the surrounding nations, like Philippines was a U.S. colony back then. You know, Vietnam was supposed to return to being a, a, a French colony. Uh, and so there was basically no uh, competing claims against Chiang Kai-shek at the moment, right? So at that time... Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek claimed South China Sea, you know, and he, he was also at his uh, probably own peak of his personal prestige as a Chinese leader that triumphed in the war against Japan in World War II. And, but unfortunately, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, his plan is, has always been 
to watch out for himself and to monopolize power in China. And and he, uh, you know, absolutely did not want to share power at all with the communists who did control a large swath of northern China as a result of the Japanese occupation because the, the communists established a series of bases in northern China after the Japanese army rolled in and basically uh, destroyed the previous uh, the, the, the governmental structure. So the, the communist guerrilla established a parallel government in the countryside you know, where they collect taxes from the peasantry and organize uh, uh, guerrilla militias. And at the end of World War II, most Chiang Kai-shek's KMT forces are in southwestern China, in, you know, Sichuan, Yunnan, and Guizhou. And yeah. to help him... That's why there's so many of you guys in Taiwan. Yes. And, and to help him, um, the, the U.S. airlifted Chiang Kai-shek's troops from southwest China to the various part of China to, to take over, uh, to accept the Japanese surrender and to take over. Now, yeah, one thing I want to mention is, um, as you're saying this, is um, the Republic of China throughout all of its history from, from 1912 or 1911 or 1010-1911 um, or like is, it was officially declared on um, January 1st, 1912. But anyways, from then to 1949, it was hardly ever a truly unified country. No, it's not because it's uh yeah. It's you had warlords in the north for a while and then you also had like Yuan Shikai trying to do his thing and then you had, you know, communists setting up bases all over the place. So, I mean, yeah, the PRC was declared in 1949, but they had um administrative they they had a history of governing China for much longer than that. Yes, because uh because the Jiang Kai-shek's government was only nominally the 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 government yeah. of China. That's that, it's acknowledged by world powers is acknowledged by various warlords in china but on the ground the reality is is a lot different because in which gets very interesting because um you know how the uh, national assembly that governed taiwan for decades was actually um elected in 1947 when the um, when the new constitution was ratified right and um let me let me, let's yeah. uh, let me backtrack a little bit right because because you know the you know Chiang Kai Shek actually was able to consolidate his power during World War Two <clears throat> under uh, Japanese invasion because he was able to leverage that to his own advantage by getting rid of some of the warlords, um, especially you know even towards the end of World War Two. For example, in Yunnan, he ordered the Yunnanese warlord Long Yun to lead his army into Vietnam to accept uh, the, the Japanese surrender over there. While Long Yun was gone, he sent his own <clears throat> his own protege down to Yunnan to stage a coup to take over the province. And there was a lot of similar, uh, similar happening around the time. But as you say, you know, the China was not really a truly unified country. And but, but Chiang Kai-shek, uh, you know, at the time, U.S. did want uh, Chiang Kai-shek to form some kind of coalition government with the communists because, you know, uh, with Chiang Kai-shek as the head of government, of course, because U.S. did want China to be um, its, you know, proxy, client, state, junior partner, if you will, in East Asia. 
However, that's not that's not something that Zhang Kaixie won because at the time Zhang Kaixie had overwhelming uh, power. He he had he held the most uh, military, and he was fully supported by by U.S. through through uh, the early part of the Chinese Civil War. So the negotiate so the the communists the Mao Zedong actually flew to Chongqing, uh, you know, with uh, with personal guarantee of his safety by the Americans and but the negotiation eventually broke down because uh, you know the 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 Chiang Kai-shek couldn't agree to have the communists to keep their own army and their own bases and and do have like a representational representational uh, power sharing arrangement instead Chiang Kai-shek thought he can resolve this through force of arm because he um, actually he, his his forces uh, compared to the communists you know vastly outnumber the communist forces and and he seemed at least on paper he, he, he looks to have the upper hand but as a consequence of the the Soviet invasion uh, occupation of Manchuria there was a this is when the cold, you know, right after the World War II ended, the Cold War really started in East Asia. Because as soon as the, the Japanese surrendered and the Soviet Red Army camping out in Manchuria, Chiang Kai-shek started to work with Americans trying to, um, you know, push the Soviet out and to, to, to ship his own, own men all the way from southwest China to northeast China, Manchuria, to take over. Now, this alarmed Stalin because originally Stalin thought he had agreement with the KMT that you know Soviet Union was supposed to keep all the privileges of former Tsarist Russia in Manchuria. But when American Marines and the Navy start start shipping KMT troops. To Manchuria, that that alarmed uh, Stalin, and and so you know you know originally Stalin agreed to a, a peaceful transition of Manchuria to 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 the KMT rule to Chiang Kai Shek, right? That was a deal the, in return for a recognition of uh, independence of Mongolia and. Uh, and special Soviet privileges in Manchuria. But when, when the American Marines start landing close to Manchuria in places like Qinghuangdao, uh, basically... That's when, um, that's when Chiang Kai-shek declared that agreement about Mongolia to be, no, to be invalid, which is why Mongolia to this day is still included on the um, so-called ROC map. Right, right. But he reneged much later because uh, the, yeah. what happened was that the, 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 the Stalin saw that that the, the Americans are closing in and they're they're really embedded, literally embedded with the KMT troops. Um, so then the, the Red Army secretly starting to hand over uh, the capture of the Japanese arsenals to the, the Chinese communist guerrillas who were uh, infiltrating Manchuria at the time. Because right after uh, Japanese surrender, uh, the, the, the Chinese Communist headquarters in Yang'an, they made a decision to send 100,000 um, Communist uh, Red Army veterans into Manchuria to 
you know, to basically to work with the Soviet Red Army and but to also to take over uh, some of this, um, the, the administration of the region. And so this was happening uh, the behind the scenes so that when the when the KMT arrived, uh, you know, on American ships to take over from from Soviet Red Army, they found that the the the, the Chinese Communist Army was already on the ground, and and they were shocked. And this was the beginning of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, you know, Chiang Kai Shek had um, had Americans help him uh, shipping half million men to Manchuria, some of his best troops, crack troops. But but the, the, the communists were able to stage a stunning victory in Manchuria and, and eventually, you know, wipe out Chiang Kai-shek's best troops there and, 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 and also elsewhere. You know, there was a series of campaigns between 1945 and 1949 uh, that resulted in a, a, a surprising and, and, and decisive communist victory on the Chinese mainland. Now, uh, this was unexpected, uh, you know, like what the U.S. had basically had to readjust its uh, East Asian policy because, you know, here Chiang Kai-shek no longer is... Uh, is no longer seem to be able to control China. And so eventually, you know, Japan, the defeated power of World War II was rehabilitated by by United States as its replacement junior partner slash proxy client state in East Asia. Now, uh, this had this series of events, of course, had serious consequences for Taiwan because, um, uh, you know, like, 1945, Taiwan has already been under Japanese occupation for for 50, 50 years. years. Uh, there's, um, you know, like there's already that not only physical separation, but also a different, uh, you know, people in Taiwan and people on mainland went through kind of parallel but separate development because you know people in Taiwan lived as subject of, of, of Japanese Empire you know as, 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 a, as a subject in the in the Japanese colony whereas um, the people on mainland China they went through the 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 very very brutal uh, Japanese invasion and and as you mentioned what we mentioned in the last episode you know there was an experience of uh, you know, the Taiwan Taiwan was actually being bombed by the American bombers flew in from from Chinese mainland. Uh, so so the difference was, so there was a quite a bit of a difference in the in the fifty years leading to the handover. And on top of that, um, when the the KMT starting to uh, you know send their troops to Taiwan. In country, like you you mentioned this last time as well, uh, whereas before most of the Chinese who came to Taiwan, you know, came mostly from Fujian, right, the, the province straight across the Taiwan Strait, or, or some some of them came from, you know, the Hakkas came from eastern Guangdong, but from the southeastern Chinese coast, and they, you know, either speak 
Hokkien or, or Hakka. Um, but the new crop um, of troops under KMT that came to Taiwan, they came from all over China. They, they, they speak different languages, speaking different dialect, uh, have different customs. And, and also they... It was that single event that really um, contributed to Taiwan's um, culinary diversity. Yes, yes, that 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 would that would come come later, um, but you know at at the at the in immediately after nineteen forty five though you it wasn't uh, clear that you know Taiwan would be separated from the from the Chinese mainland because um, you know at the t- at the time in in the early part of uh, post World War Two. You know, Chiang Kai-shek looks like he was about to win the Chinese Civil War. He staged a major offensive into all the communist areas. Um, he scored a major victory in Manchuria. Uh, you know, he was he was on a road from nineteen forty five to nineteen forty six, right? And and um, but by nineteen forty seven, things start to change. The the momentum start to shift. Both on Taiwan and you'll find in the mainland, and in Taiwan that um the KMT suffered um a major blow to its support because at at the beginning of uh, Taiwan's retrocession, um most of the Taiwanese people welcomed the KMT despite you know some of the things we mentioned, but after two years of rule, tension really started building up because of you know things like unemployment, hyperinflation, and because. The KMT was carrying out the civil war on the mainland. A lot of grain from Taiwan was exported to, exported to the mainland. So, um, even though Taiwan was no longer um, colon- um colonized by foreigners, um, Taiwan lost. It, it was it, it to many people, there was less stability than there was when Taiwan was a Japanese colony before, especially before World War Two. Before World War II really impacted them. Yeah, and this is important because, uh, in some way, what people experience in Taiwan is similar to what uh, people experience under, you know, the the Japanese occupied China. Because, um, what when the came the first of all, you know, the, the all the all the people, whether on Taiwan or on China, on mainland China, they all suffered the deprivation of war, and one of the consequences of the war was a shortage. And that, but that that devastation of the economy didn't end with the end of World War Two. And one of the one of the problem is because Chiang Kai Shek decided to immediately pursue a civil war. Right, uh, more yeah. m- most of the resources got. Got plowed in to pursue the, the the military victory against the communists. So even though you know people should... and that was before U.S. aid started really kicking into Taiwan. Yeah. So standard of living was very um it was a, it was a very tumultuous time. Yes. So you, and you'll see how th- how this um erupts in the um February twenty eighth incident in nineteen forty seven. Yes, and and the the KM I can speak about the KMT practice on mainland, and maybe you can talk about on Taiwan specifically. So what happened, um, you know, the, when the, when the, when the KMT, uh, it, 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 I think it, it, maybe it's analogous to like the carpet baggers because of the, 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 
the the KMT officials who mostly have been you know hiding out in southwestern China throughout the war. Now at the time of Japanese surrender, they suddenly swooped in into the former occupied territory, and and you know the the all they they start to take over a lot of the the the, the um uh the, the the Japanese held property, which were basically happened in Taiwan too. Yeah, which those property were previously expropriated by by Japanese Imperial Army to support their war effort, and now. What the KMT is doing is they just uh, oh they just swoop in and and trying to um, take over the best property for themselves. Like a lot of the KMT officials got got fabulously wealthy in the process. Like my uh, one my my paternal grandfather, uh, he he lived in uh, Hainan, Zhejiang, and during Japanese uh, occupation, he was a uh, you know, he had his medical practice inside the town of Yuanhua, and when he went to his clinic, he has to go pass through a, a Japanese checkpoint, and the the Japanese soldier demanded all Chinese to bow down to to the to the Japanese uh, soldiers at the checkpoint, and my grandfather refused to bow down, and for that he was he, the Japanese soldier slapped him across the face and, and and my my grandfather felt very humiliated so he went out and seek out uh, to join the underground resistance right and there was no communist resistance in around uh, Zhejiang so he joined the KMT underground resistance and he was mostly uh, involved in like printing uh, propaganda uh, anti-japanese propaganda posters and you know plastered them all over town stuff like that but after after the war, uh, when you know KMT official from Chongqing came 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 to the town, they basically told him, "Okay, you guys can all go home now. You know, we'll take over." And the, these these uh, KMT officials they divided up all the spoils of war for themselves. You know, the, all the all the uh, properties they confiscated from the from the Japanese who, you know, previously the Japanese confiscated from their previous Chinese owners now just became personal property of these corrupt uh, KMT officials. So there's, and, and um, as a result of Chiang Kai-shek pursuing the civil war, you know, the hyperinflation went crazy that, you know, the paper currency was becoming worthless because the, the KMT was starting to print a lot of uh, paper money. And, and, you know, like the, it, its its economy was already in shambles, and and you know when when the the KMT decided to pursue the war, one of the thing about the communist base is that mo- most of the communist base in North China they control the countryside, so they control a lot of the uh, um, agricultural producing regions, right? And and so that did not help with the hyperinflation at all, and and so there was a lot of uh, resentment. Uh, all across China against the KMT rule at the time. Uh, maybe you can talk about specifically, you know, the, the, some of the discontentment in on Taiwan itself. It's even worse in Taiwan because remember, um, Taiwan had been separated from the mainland for 50 years and you have a new set of Chinese people coming in who were from different parts of China than before and they spoke different languages, as you said. As you said. And um, there was this sense of um, division. You have like the Bensheng Ren, which... Um, 
technically it includes everybody in Taiwan whose family was in Taiwan was in Taiwan before the um the retrocession in 1945, but it's um predominantly it's cent- centered around the um the the Hoklo people or the the people from southern Fujian whose families began immigrating to Taiwan from uh, around 400 years ago until you know the Japanese era, and um so on top of these um this sort of resentment against the government, you also have kind of a resentment towards mainland Chinese people. Remember, um, and, and, and then um, a lot of these mainland Chinese people who came to Taiwan, because mainland China was very poor back then, you know, they were like dressed in very poor clothes. Some of them had never seen elevators before, for example. And um, it was, there was this sort of era of uh, superiority by some Taiwanese people. And it's kind of valid because at the same time, the mainland, the KMT was very distrustful. The KMT was very distrustful of the Taiwanese people, considering them to have been, you know, Japified, Japanized, whatever that word is, you know, like, Japanhua. And um, they, so then many of the civil servants in Taiwan, who like Taiwanese civil servants who worked in government were just, um, you know, who did administrative stuff were fired and replaced with mainlanders who many of many of whom were underqualified, to be perfectly frank. So then there was a sort of, well, mainlanders don't like us and we don't like mainlanders. And then you have all of those issues that, you know, all, all of the qualms that the people in the mainland had against the KMT, you add all of that up. So it's just contradictions upon contradictions. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was this reason and, why Chiang Kai-shek lost in the Civil War. I, I mean, he, he, he totally mismanaged yeah. the country um, after World War II. He, he, he went from being the kind of hail as the leader of China. Even before World War know, II. In October, in um in August 1945, when Japanese surrendered, been to this really reviled figure and, and, and hated across much of China because, you know, all the problems that, that was brought on both by the uh, the handover and also the the following civil war that he pursued. And, and he- I feel like most of the supporters of Chiang Kai-shek at that time were like, Chinese people abroad who were very patriotic towards China and didn't have exactly. to live under him. Exactly. All this led to, uh, eventually led to a blow up on Taiwan in 1947 uh, in what now known as 228 incident, the February 28th, uh, or some, sometimes known as the February 28th massacre in, in Taiwan. It was just a, basically a, a, a big... Uh, Taiwanese uh, insurrection against the KMT rule. Um, would you like to talk about that? So um, I'm just going to go over it briefly because I think the implications of it are much more important than the actual happenings of the event. And also, um, it's interesting because um, because it's been such a banned, it, it was a banned topic for many decades until um, either the late 80s or early 90s. So then as soon as um, people were allowed to talk about it, it also gave the ruling class a lot of um, room to maneuver because you have a new generation that didn't grow up under like grow up experiencing it. So it's um it was a it was kind of a complicated event that got simplified to just oh mainlanders killing Taiwanese people, which that did happen, but that isn't the whole story. So basically, on um February twenty seventh, the um, tobacco monopoly borough 
sent out an enforcement team to um in Taipei, and then they confiscated illegal cigarettes from a woman named Lin Jiangmai. So then things escalated. She was pretty much like, yo, what the fuck, giving back my cigarettes. So then one of the people on the enforcement team hit her with his rifle. And as we mentioned, people were people in Taiwan were already very dissatisfied with the KMT and um, mainland Chinese people in general. So this, that was just a triggering point, right? I mean, it just it triggered all the discontent that was being built up since 1940. Yes, but it was nothing until afterwards. And um, I want another thing I want to mention is um, though it, it's it, it's unfortunate because um, main the ruling the new rulers the new government was comprised mainly of mainlanders. But then that's not. But then, as you can imagine, it's not. Just Taiwanese people who were oppressed by the KMT. Other mainlanders were definitely oppressed by it. Otherwise, why 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 did they why did they kick them out of the mainland? But I'm also talking about mainlanders in Taiwan. And then when the when the two two eight incident happened, and there was blowback, mainland civilians, many of whom weren't even government related, were also targeted by um like you know um mob beatings and killings and rapings and stuff like that. But then that's underplayed today because it doesn't fit the um the narrative of you know the people people who are in control unfortunately but anyways things escalated and then taiwanese passersby intervened and then they surrounded the officials who ran away so then that crowd ended up going to the police station and the government to complain and protest about the inc- incident and they were also voicing their frustrations about this about um their grievances over unemployment inflation corruption and that sort of stuff so then um soldiers shot into the crowd to disperse them and a few of them died so then as you can imagine people were already upset with the KMT and that just that just that was like the last straw so then um by March 4th protesters took over government buildings and military bases and then they announced the incident that occurred over the past few days over the radio and it caused uprisings throughout all of Taiwan. Like people were, um, it wasn't just uprisings. It was also, you know, targeted beatings of mainland families and stuff like that. It's so bad that some mainlanders who moved to Taiwan after World War II ended up moving back to the mainland. And then um, martial law was enacted by the KMT with curfews in force. So then if, you, if people violated curfew and walked out at night, they were either arrested or shot. So as you can imagine, riots broke out. And, um, I, I just want to point out that, you know, the anti-mainland uh, uh, violence that did occur, I mean, it's sometimes it's almost unavoidable in this kind of mass movement with no, uh, like a clear yeah. political organization or ideological leadership, right? I mean, because this was... Yeah. It was a big tent thing. It was there were many people of different camps frustrated by at the KMT for various different reasons, and there were communists involved, but it wasn't like a communist movement. Yeah, this was basically to people sure. dissatisfied, dissatisfied by the KMT misrule in Taiwan, and it, it unfortunately for a lot of the mainland families who came over uh, to Taiwan after nineteen forty five, they became associated with the hated KMT rule and they basically become yes. a, a kind of a yes even to they, this they day became the, basically so scapegoats and, and and became the target of those resentment and because they're they're the ones that 
most visible, right? Because you know you you're not gonna reach the freaking KMT official. Linguistic barriers are much more um, tangible to people than like class divisions and power power divisions and stuff like I that. I mean, a lot of the the you know times that the conflict like this uh, became some kind of uh, you know either like a like an ethnic conflict or. Uh, um, rather than class conflict, because because it, it it just that 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 different uh differencing identity and and culture sometimes um you know it, it masked the, the 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 real class struggle that that was happening you know yeah and um the KMT actually took advantage of that like telling the mainlanders hey the Taiwanese people don't like you we're here to protect you. And then, you know, basically, um, so around that time, 32 demands were also raised by, you know, it was a lot of students and a lot of people from all walks of life. Their demands were basically democracy, the right to strike, you know, the requirement of two thirds of the government commissioners to be people who have resided in Taiwan for more than 10 years because they felt that um, they felt that the people in government were out of touch with happenings in Taiwan, which was yeah. very true. I must add, and then um, all this time, the um, the government, the governor of Taiwan, then Chen Yi, different character, not like the Chen Yi in mainland China, the different Yi, but he was he just kind of stalled as um, he asked for reinforcement from mainland China. So then that arrived on March eighth, I believe, and they. They've docked at um, Jilong, which is the northernmost city in Taiwan. It was a port city. And um, that's when crackdowns really began. And that's considered to be like the beginning of the KMT's white terror in Taiwan. You had people just on military vehicles just shooting indiscriminately at people for a few days. And around that time, even like far... My, my grandmother was is from Tainan, southern Taiwan. And even she has memories. She said, like around that time, like she remembered just seeing dead bodies, like while she was walking, like just walking around during the day, like to and from school or whatever, or I no work. I think it was no, it was school. Yeah, and that's when martial law was enacted. It stayed martial law remained until 1985 when it was lifted under the leadership of Jiang Jingguo. When there was like you know a, a another wave of like a lot of pro-democracy like bourgeois democracy i must add movements and um during this time it was interesting you had um you had militias forming and one perhaps one of the most notable one is called the um or the 27 brigade organized by xie xue hong who was a taiwanese communist party leader who ended up escaping to hong kong three weeks after the whole event before moving to xiamen in the mainland she ended up dying in beijing you know chiang kai shiv was also his regime was also very paranoid uh, about uh you know possible communist uh infiltration and and led uh, uh insurgencies because 1940- to be sure there was communist um, yes, infiltration but, going but on at the time 1947 you know this was a time when um you know, things are not. Chiang Kai Shek was starting to realize the civil war wasn't going the way he was he was expected to. Uh, you know, the you know the the the, the tie was starting gradually starting to turn in the communist favor, and 
to have this happen in Taiwan, it was it was a bit of a shock, right? And and then the the they they he was already paranoid about you know seeing communists everywhere, red red menace, and 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 this just gave him a excuse to you know further crack down. And um, if you want to know more about the two two eight incident, I highly recommend the film um, City of Sadness, Beijing Chengshi. Is this a Taiwanese film? It's a uh, yeah. It was like it was one of the first major films about um two two eight, and I think it's rather um, I think it's rather objective. Okay, so considering the political, you know, considering how this is such a um um contentious yes, topic, even till the day. Um, it's very I divisive. Mean, the, you really divided the the um, among the, the different communities in Taiwan. You know, especially into the the mainlander versus uh, the 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 Benson or the local uh, local Taiwanese uh, camp. So around this time, you know, the U.S. was also losing faith in Chiang Kai-shek. They were just like, okay, we don't, he's not reliable, and um, since he lost the mainland, we're just not going to intervene. We're just not going to. Whatever Taiwan is, Taiwan is done for. It's going to be taken over by, by the um by the Chai Coms as they call them, the Chinese yeah. communists. So that was also the attitude in Taiwan. In Taiwan, many people there, people like to say that the two two eight incident was marked the beginning of Taiwan independ- Taiwan independence movement. But I think outside of like intellectuals, like I think most of the people thought re- more realistically thought that Taiwan was going to be liberated by the yes. by the communists I mean- and. During this time, there was a U.S. diplomat named um, Livingston T. Merchant, and he was sent to Taiwan on a field mission by Atchison to see if there could be an autonomous government set up. I think I mentioned this in the last government, but I'm just going to recap it. He basically told the governor of Taiwan, the, um, Chen Ni, if he separated the provincial government from the national government and cut off communications with the communists, the U.S. will send you know a bunch of like a like 25 million annually. Taiwan will be like a not. Uh, will be occupied by the allied forces kind of like korea and then there will be a transfer of power to a new government and then chiang kai-shek can go to taiwan as a political refugee but then that didn't happen so you can see that after around that time whether what to do with chiang kai-shek and what to do with taiwan was a very heavily debated topic in the u.s and we can't and it's hard to just say that, oh, the U.S. wholeheartedly supported Chiang Kai-shek or Taiwan independence or this or that, because it was very divided. And um, there was a section of imperialists in the U.S. who did not want to split China along the Taiwan Strait. They didn't want to recognize the new socialist government, but they also wanted to cut ties with that that all became yeah, relevant yeah. after the communist victory on the mainland, right? I mean, in nineteen forty-seven, oh, yeah, yeah, everything is up. up oh, yeah, everything sorry. is well, up in air. Seven. Like Taiwan actually became more important as Chiang Kai-shek lose more ground on the mainland, and and eventually became his last refugee, right? And and in fact, um, maybe we can talk about um, um, so so. To 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 wrap it up, the you know the the, the communists scored a, a series of stunning victories uh, in on mainland China to the point that uh, where it was not even tenable for Chiang Kai Shek to hold, like say the southern China south of Yangtze River because because you know he already lost 
bulk of his forces uh, uh, on the on the uh, in the northern China. And for some context, I want to add that when when Mao declared the 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 founding of the new People's Republic, when that happened, there were still areas of mainland China under control by the KMT, though they were very they were they were very weak, and everybody knew what was going to happen. It was just a matter of when Chiang Kai Shek would yeah, I mean lose his control and, over those territories. Like Hainan wasn't liberated until the following originally, year. Originally, Mao had envisioned, you know, maybe maybe a, a, a like a 10-year struggle in the Chinese Civil War, but the events unfolded very quickly and and you know, no, almost nobody expected KMT to fall so quickly in, in 1949. Everything was getting wrapped up. And and at that point, uh, you know, the, the, it was obvious to anyone that there's no way the KMT will be able to hold any ground on on the mainland. It's just a matter of time. And at, at the time, it was there might also be the thinking on Taiwan itself because you know um, after the the two two eight incident, um, actually just just before the two two eight incident on Taiwan. The communists, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, sent its representative uh, to Taiwan in 1946, just just a one year before two two eight incident. And this is a uh, Tsai Xiaoqian, and he is one of the few Taiwanese communists that uh, you know that went to mainland, and he actually was the only Taiwanese that participated uh, in the Long March. So he had a lot of credit you know, with the Chinese communist within the Chinese Communist Party. So he was sent as his head representative to organize the underground resistance in Taiwan and to prepare Taiwan for eventual liberation. But um, by 1940, uh, around 1948, 1940, so, so there were a series of uh, crackdown in Taiwan, especially as Chiang Kai-shek realized that's going to be his last refuge, uh, right? Uh, and 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 there was a, a he, he was already unpopular there. So let's see how well that turns out. Yeah, there was massive arrests of of, of Taiwanese students, um, and yeah, and and then then this led to uh, you know basically more people resenting the KMT rules, and many people are are joining the communist underground. Uh, to, you know, because it's the communists at the time were probably the best organized. Uh, 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 you know, there were various people who who resent the KMT rules, but the communists were probably just the best organized group. And yeah, and I think the audience will really will realize this as we go on and really give concrete examples of this unfolding. And I want to add that um, Chiang Kai Shek. A lot of people nowadays, for some reason, associate like Taiwan independence with Chiang Kai Shek, which is very odd considering he was he was very against Taiwan independence or even the notion of two Chinas. He saw um like the so-called ROC and the PRC as two competing um entities of that represented the same China. And um but because of the mishandling of all of these contradictions, he certainly did set the stage for the Taiwan independence movement to kind of kick off in like a few I mean decades. uh I mean, Chiang Kai-shek, he's, he's a Chinese nationalist. 
uh, that that's his yeah. basically guiding ideology. And so he was not the ideal puppet for the U.S. because he had too many of his own ideas. Well, yeah, he's he's always his own bastard, right? I mean, he's nobody's master but his yeah. own. He 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 had always uh, yes. he's even he's always on the lookout for himself to maximize his own power, and that's why. Um, you know, he had such a working, difficult working relationship with uh, Vinegar Joe, Joe Stilwell in World War Two, because, you know, like he was not as malleable, right? He he's always have his own calculus, how trying to how to squeeze the most out of his relationship with U.S. to to bolster his own standing, and and you know, so some some people in U.S. didn't like that. Some people in this in the state department didn't like that um and so um basically can we just jump to 1949 yeah like when um his when when the national arm when when the uh, the so-called roc government relocated to taiwan and brought over like a whole new wave of people I just wanted so, to um, uh, cover a couple more uh events so in 19 okay wait you cover it real quick i'm gonna go okay. to the back <laughs> So in 1946, um, the the Chinese communists uh, sending the Taiwanese communist uh, Tsai Xiaoqian back to Taiwan. So Taiwan actually had uh, its own communist party um, back in the days when Taiwan was uh, a colony of Japan. Originally, the Taiwanese communist party was under the direct supervision of the, the Japanese Communist Party. But many the Taiwanese communists for you know obvious cultural reasons, they went to, to mainland China to study and to uh, work with uh, with the, 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 the uh, Chinese communists on the mainland. Uh, one of which was this person Tsai Xiaoqian. Uh, as I mentioned, he um, actually went to the was sent to the uh, Mao's communist base in Jiangxi, where he participated in the Long March. Um, so by 1946, he was sent back to Taiwan to organize the underground resistance. And as after the 228 incident in 1947, so that's February 22nd, a lot of the uh, intellectuals and a lot of uh, uh, anti-AMT elements in Taiwan want to seek out guidance, you know, the from from the, Ta- the Taiwanese Communist Party because they're the best organized group, and as a result, uh, you know, the Chiang Kai Shek in nineteen forty nine, as he was losing the civil war on the mainland, he started a, a, a series of crackdown on, on Taiwan, and one of them is uh, so called the four six incident when um you know there was a the the kmt government just start mass arrest college students who had been uh, staging you know anti-hunger strike um some some of these student movement are of course led by the communists um but you know (laughs) jiang kai-she just wanted to make sure taiwan would be secure as his base and after the series of uh, a crackdown, the, the 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 Chinese Communist Party's uh, designated leader on Taiwan, Tsai Xiaoqian, was arrested, and he was turned uh, into a defector eventually because his relationship with um, 
with his own sister-in-law. Uh, the 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 KMT intelligence uh, agency used that relationship to to turn him, and he because of uh, his defection, the entire Chinese Communist underground network in Taiwan was uprooted, and this made in a way made Taiwan secure. And as for movies, there was a. Chinese mainland and Taiwan co-production uh, movie called The Knot, uh, in Chinese called Yun Shui Yao. Uh, it's based on the it's based on the autobiography of um, of the Taiwanese communist uh, who who made back to mainland after you know after this. Uh, uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, white terror. And uh, I personally find the movie interesting, particularly the first half, because it uh, really presented uh, like the idealized version of the Taiwan countryside before 1947. Uh, oh, by the way, it's based on the autobiography of Taiwanese communist, communist Zhang Kehui, uh, who happened to be like the highest ranking uh, high, highest ranking Taiwanese member of the Ch- Chinese Communist Party currently. He 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 was uh, you know another native Taiwanese student who joined the Communist Party, and as a result of Chiang Kai-shek's white terror, he had to leave Taiwan and fled to mainland. And 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 but while this uh, while Chiang Kai-shek was continuing his crackdown, the the Chinese People's Liberation Army was making headways on main, mainland. Uh, very quickly, they swept across the Yangtze River, captured the uh, KMT capital Nanjing, and and advanced further south. The, the, the advance was very rapid. Uh, you know, the, the the KMT line was collapsing everywhere. You know, everybody at this point thought. Uh, you know, all of China will be liberated. So the the the, the Chinese uh, third, um, I believe it's a, uh, uh, yeah, I believe the third field army of PLA swept into Fujian province, which is just on the other side of Taiwan. You know where most of the so-called uh, local Taiwanese people originally came from. They then. Uh, uh, start uh, capturing the island of Xiamen and Jinmen. Now, if you remember from our first episode, uh, we talk about Xiamen and Jinmen as these two islands off the coast of Fujian. That used to be the headquarters of the Chinese pirates slash national hero uh, Koxinga, a.k.a. Zhen Chenggong. Right, he Zhen Chenggong, uh, aka Koshinga, actually originally launched from his base in Xiamen and Jinmen across the Taiwan Strait to kick out the Dutch out of Taiwan and to establish his own power base in Taiwan. So this time, um, as a prelude uh, to what looks to be liberation of Taiwan, the PLA launched the Battle of Xiamen. They the very quickly capture shaman and then they 
launch an invasion of Jinmen Island, which just lay across the waters. Um, you know, Xiamen and Jinmen, they're, they're both islands and they're both uh, very, have been historically very important um, trade hubs. Another... We'll get into um, Jinmen in a lot more detail later. Today. Another name anyway. for uh, a, a shaman, as we talk about in English, is a moi, which is uh, trans transcribed from the Hokkien language. And and uh, for the... not quite, I think it's the other I'm way sorry? around. I think, I think it's the, is is it? I th- I thought it was the other what way around here? because in Hokkien it's emun. I'm not sure if it's directly um, transliterated because in Hokkien it's emu. Okay, no, I mean no, no. It's not. Well, it's originally from Portuguese, right? Like like the Portuguese. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Got... And then Jinmen was also called Quemu. Yeah, because because the Portuguese got their name from the Hokkien, right? And then the English got it from the Portuguese. So so the the name was corrupted oh, okay. several times already. Uh, but uh, as a note for the American audience, the bo- the original Boston Tea Party. That sparks the American Revolution. The tea that tossed into Boston Harbor came from shaman, from Amoy. And, and um, while we're on that topic, I want to mention on when Chiang Kai-shek retreated to Taiwan, he remembered history, and um, the Dutch were a- unable to stop Zheng Chenggong from defeating them. And then afterwards, the um, the remnants of the Ming of the Ming Dynasty on Taiwan were unable to stop the Qing from defeating them as well. So Chang rightly felt that history was going to repeat himself and that he was basically fucked. Yes. And and in 1949, uh, the, the PLA quickly took over Xiamen in a, uh, I think, in like one day long battle. And then they went on to try to capture Jinmen Island. But their plan was to retake Taiwan in 1950. Right. So because, you know, like Xiamen and Jinmen, they are kind of springboard, even though they're off offshore islands of Fujian. But that has always been like the uh, kind of like the the gateway, so so to speak, to Taiwan. To the Taiwan but, Strait. Yeah. But the, the, uh, but the PLA um, commanders got a little bit overconfident after the captain they were dizzy with success in comrade stalin's yes, words they were because they, they, they quickly captured so much uh, a huge swaths of china they were able to capture very important trade port of shaman and then jimman is just you know it looks like it's about to fall you can see it from shaman i'm sorry you can see it from shaman yeah, like I often say, I've seen Jinmen, but I've never but, been there. But the thing is, the PLA at this point didn't really had a navy, didn't really have a navy, so they had to rely on like literally fishing boats to sh- wooden fishing boats to ship their soldiers across the across the sea to 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 take over the Jinmen Island. And what they un- um they're not familiar because this troop that come from the north, right? They, they, they put that put across the Yangtze River and quickly pushed down into southern China. They're unfamiliar with the tide of the region, and and and, and the, the the invasion of Jinmen was organized so hastily that when they uh when they landed the first wave of troops, uh, because of the shifting tide, the the boats 
couldn't get back, could, couldn't, it, uh, couldn't, you know, go back to Sham and, 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 and further supply and bring reinforcement. In effect, you got the, the, the troops who that landed on Jimin got cut off. And the KMT at the time, they still have, you know, modern warships basically from the American land lease. They have they have a they have a real navy, right? So 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 uh, in a surprising turn, the KMT decided to make a stand at Jinmen, and they they quickly cut off the reinforcement um, from mainland to to Jinmen, and trapped the PLA forces that that already made the made the landing. And this is one of the few KMT victories in nineteen forty nine, like like. Uh, uh, a surprising KMT victory, uh, and this this somehow was always hailed by KMT as like their um, I don't know kind of like the the the, the 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 saving grace, if you will. That that somehow saved the the them the the. It was a morale exactly booster. exactly because because from in 1949 KMT suffered defeat after defeat. And this kind of minor battle of Jinmen became a like a big propaganda victory, basically. Yeah. So while we're on this topic, I want to tie this into the um, the political development of Taiwan. And to do that, I'm going to um, provide a little bit of, um, I guess, international context. So basically, logically, the next step was the liberation of Taiwan, but the PLA had some setbacks. Like Carl said, there was no Navy. The um the PLA didn't really have a like a mature air force. So a delegation headed by um Yu Saoqi, yeah, the dude who was targeted during the Cultural Revolution, um, went to Moscow to meet Stalin and he and he basically asked Stalin for two hundred planes and some training. But Stalin said no because the Soviet Union had already suffered great losses during World War II, and he really didn't want to risk war with the U.S. So, um, but as we mentioned Korea earlier, um, because if if you think about it, um, Taiwan is pretty far from the Soviet border, but Korea isn't. So when Stalin, though Stalin was quite reluctant to promise much to China regarding Taiwan, he had a very different attitude towards Korea since it had a greater geopolitical impact. On the Soviet Union. So in 1949, he promised Kim Il sung that if war broke out in Korea, that the Soviet Union would deliver material aid. Now, this is very important because 1950 is when the year that the PLA planned on liberating Taiwan. And it's also, as we can see, as we know now, the year that the Korean War started. So basically, Kim Il sung went to Beijing to talk to Mao about this in early 1950, and um, I really want to um, say that it's it's a complicated issue on who began the Korean War, but it's not the simple matter of the KPA launching a surprise attack on June 25th, 1950. But anyways, um, they knew that war was probably going to happen soon, so um. I, I talk about this because the Chinese and Korean communists formed a very great bond during their war against Japan. And Mao also understood the geopolitical implications of war in Korea, because like I mentioned in the previous episode, Korea has always been the bridge into China by imperialists. So um, Mao's main concern at this point was 
if war broke out in Korea before Taiwan was liberated, then the U.S.'s attitude towards Taiwan would change. Because keep in mind, at this point, in 1949, the U.S., most um, Truman was basically determined to give up on Taiwan, whereas MacArthur thought that it was important to, you know, maintain support towards Chiang Kai-shek. And this contradiction between the two is plays an important role in the fate of Taiwan, which is probably what we're going to talk about. And another thing about Korean War, a side note, is that um, in the beginning, actually, Kim, uh, both North and South were planning on war to reunify Korea. Not not just Kim Il-sung was planning to unify uh, Korea by force, but also from uh, from the South Korean side, well, obviously, it's one country. Yeah, yeah. They uh, what's the, what's the South Korean president at the time? Simon Rhee. He was also planning. He was also planning to to reunify Korea by force, and, and both sides were building up their military forces. And what gave the uh, DPRK the ed- the military edge was actually um, Mao agreed to Kim Il Sung's request to send him uh, three. Uh, to three divisions of the of the Korean of Korean soldiers serving in the PLA, because you know, like during the during the um, Chinese Civil War, Manchuria was a major theater of war, and and um, as a result of you know the the um, you know the history with with the Japanese invasion, there was a large-scale Korean migration into Manchuria. There were about three three to four million uh, Koreans living in Manchuria at the end of World War II. And um, many of them, you know, participated in the Chinese Civil War. They were recruited in the PLA. And so that's that's how, uh, you know, you you ended up with... uh, 40, 30 to 40,000 uh, Koreans in the PLA. And, and the Kim Yo-sung specifically asked Mao for those forces. So, so Mao uh, agreed and basically sent these, uh, um, you can say, Chinese-Korean units. Uh, that bolsters the, uh, the, the, the force of DPRK to over 100,000. And, and to give them the edge and the manpower, you know, to push south. Uh, that that is just a digression. So so Yeah, so let's get back to um Chiang Kai shek's uncertainty of his fate in the Korean War. Because yeah. we're at this is like the perfect time to talk about that. And it's um chrono it's and chronologically this is where it was. Yes, because so basically yeah, go ahead, yeah. sorry. Chiang Kai-shek knew that he was pretty much screwed, so he sent one of his generals, um, Li Cibai, to mainland China to have final talks with the communists. He picked him because Li Cibai's younger sister was Chen Yi's sister-in-law, General Chen Yi in the PLA. So um, basically what he said was anything was was negotiable under the condition that the communists would not um, put their boots on Taiwan. And this went on as the Korean War was about to begin. And um, remember, the Korean War started on June 25th of 1950. In mid-June, 10 days before the Korean War broke out, 
the secretary, the U.S. Secretary of Defense Johnson, and um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Bradley, brought a note back from MacArthur, which um, it basically went over the military significance of Taiwan and why the communists cannot have it. So um, you basically have the Aleutian Islands, a chain of islands from the Aleutian Islands to the Mariana Islands. And um, that's one of the U.S.'s chains of um, defense or aggression, the first, depending on how the, you look yeah, at it. Yeah, the first island chain and the second island chain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, Taiwan, geo- geographically, it was nearest of all of the islands in the Pacific. It was closest to both Okinawa and the Philippines, both of which are under U.S. control, which means Taiwan is the perfect um, aircraft carrier, so to speak. It can't move, but it also can't sink. So um, if Taiwan were lost, this um, comprehensive defense network, or as I like to call it, the network of aggression would be broken. And um, basically, um, the U.S. would lose control of a good chunk of the Pacific Ocean. Now, um, if the U.S. were to shift its attitude towards Taiwan, it would also create a new problem. Because when Truman thought of giving up Chiang Kai-shek, there wasn't really much thought of, you know, two two Chinas or one Taiwan, one China, whatever. But if the U.S. decided to um, shift it, then it would at least de facto, it, it would create a de facto situation of um, two Chinas and also challenge the status. It, it would also challenge the status of, you know, the the PRC and how the U.S. is to approach its relationship with Taiwan or and the um, so-called ROC. And although Chiang Kai-shek was in a um, precarious situation, he still could not accept the creation of two Chinas or an independent Taiwan. And the foreign minister, um, Ye Gongchao, stated that the so-called ROC stance was the preservation of China's territorial integrity. And that Taiwan is an inseparable part of China. So at that point, I mean, this is still the official position, but it's not actively pursued anymore in Taiwan. So this, at that point, the situation was kind of the official position of both governments that were actually being carried out because there's still the official position. Now, just Taiwan's not really actively pursuing it. So it's similar to the two Korean governments, which is um, both the DPRK and the so-called ROK consider themselves to be the sole legitimate representative of the Korean Peninsula. It, it's just that part of their own territory is occupied by the enemies. But they're still domestic enemies, not foreign enemies. So um, from the standpoint of Chinese sovereignty, Mao Zedong and um, Chiang Kai-shek were in agreement. They just disagreed on which government was the legitimate representative of um, the same China. So therefore, um, you know, as the U.S. was kind of doing this behind the back of Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek was pretty pissed off. Because they were because to justify this, they began really pushing the um the undetermined status of Taiwan rhetoric. So um at this time, Chiang Kai-shek told his intelligence agents to just observe to keenly observe the situation on Korea, and also the moves that the U.S. forces in Japan were making. And as soon as the Korean War broke out, Seaman Rhee hit up Chiang Kai-shek. It was in, um, on the midnight of June 26th, so basically not not twenty four, not even 24 hours after um, the Korean War broke out, Chiang Kai-shek ordered 
his military to be ready for war. And he told his son, Jiang Jingguo, to tell General Li Cibai, the guy who he sent to the mainland to um, negotiate with the communists, to um, end all negotiations. So he could see a shift in attitude. He went from, you know, a position of weakness all of a sudden to a position of confidence. Now, MacArthur, Bradley Johnson, and um, the chief of staff of the U.S. Army, Collins, did not see the Korean War as a civil war between North and South Korea, but a war between U.S. interests and communists. So they drew up, they hastily drew up a plan, which was um, to assist South Korea, to assist the South Korean army immediately with the help of Chiang Kai-shek's troops and to reiterate the importance of Taiwan to U.S. interests and defend it from the communists. Because remember, at this time, Truman was still kind of um, not on board with that. And they also wanted to build up the strength of the pro-U.S. forces in the Philippines and Indochina and also safeguard Japan for obvious reasons. So um, why is this significant? Because um, Chiang Kai-shek hoped that the Korean War could turn into World War III so that he could recapture um, the mainland with the help of the U.S. So he hit up MacArthur and um, Syngman Rhee saying that he'll send the 52nd Army consisting of um, 33,000 people to fight in Korea. And Atchison was firmly against this plan, saying that Taiwan should not be left unprotected and that Chiang Kai-shek's troops weren't necessarily better than South Korean soldiers. And if the South Koreans really needed help, the U.S. might as well just send material aid to the South Korean army. And, um, but then um, Johnson said that sending troops over after the 7th Fleet had entered the Taiwan Strait would be doable. Yes? Yeah, I just would like to mention that uh, speaking of uh, Chiang Kai-shek offering to send troops to Korea, we, even though it didn't materialize, he did the same in Vietnam, by the way. It, it, even though it didn't materialize, but um, uh, inexplicably, so so um, after the the uh, Korean War uh, got under the way, uh, then U.S. got the U.N. to declare basically to send the so-called U.N. forces to Korea to push back against the communist forces and. And basically, the the UN forces consist of uh, <clears throat> U.S. Proc, uh, U.S. Uh, client states and, and proxies all across the world, and uh, one of the participants was Turkey. And you know, the, the, there was a Turkish brigade that participated in the Korea War, and in, in the Turkey <clears throat> Turkish War Museum on Korean War, there is an inexplicably a display of the Republic of China flag that supposedly that they captured in Korea. And this has become like an internet meme in, on the Chinese social media because it, it, it became a laughing stock because, you know, like, what? how do, do they think they captured the, the Republic of China flag in Korea, right? Because... Yeah, it could be from a from the Chinese diaspora community there, <laughs> but but it was presented as like a kind of like the the, the war, like a war yeah trophy. war trophy by the Turkish brigade. <laughs> but anyway, so that that was just a a fun diversion. Uh, back to back to yeah. back to the story, please. 
So then, um, Chunk at this time, Chiang Kai Shek sent his ambassador, um, what was his face? Um, Gu Weijun. Right? Is that his name? No. I mean the 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 real um thing was that U.S. decision to send in Seventh Fleet into Taiwan Strait, right? That, that which at the time the uh, the the China, communist China did not have a navy, uh, you know that that they could not ferry. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wasn't finished Sorry, with that thought. They sent his um he sent his ambassador um Gu Weijun and um also this intellectual Hu Shi to the White House to talk this plan over, and um, Truman actually liked it. Yes, and what were you saying? Yeah, and then I was asking what you were saying before because I think we broke up. Oh, I was just saying, you know, the the important fact was that U.S. sending the Seventh Fleet into Taiwan Strait, and that oh, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, is U.S. for the first time directly intervened in the Chinese Civil War, uh, you know, preventing PLA from crossing Taiwan Strait and and going on to liberate Taiwan, and that that. Yeah. Okay, we're going we're going to talk about how that plays an important role in the Battle of Jinmen. Yeah, yeah, but that 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 happened after the after the Korean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I'm I'm just I'm just putting everything into context. I like to remind the listener, hey, pay attention to this because it's going to come up again. Yes, because uh, you know, the 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 first battle of Jinmen was in nineteen happened in nineteen forty nine when immediately after PLA captured Sham and they tried to capture Jinmen, but this was this was effort was um was a was a big setback. But keep in mind. Anyways, this the sequel is better is is what we're trying to say. But keep in mind, uh, in 1949, 1950s, the KMT still control um, a large swath of offshore islands of China. So anywhere from Zhejiang down to Hainan Islands, uh, the the KMT controlled almost uh, all the all offshore all the offshore islands, uh, primarily because you know. Uh, KMT at the time had a navy, the PLA didn't, and they have an air force. So they were able to, you know, station a large force in Zhousan Island, uh, just just offshore from Zhejiang, you know, including uh, Da Chen, Da Chen Dao that, that you mentioned earlier. We're going to get to that soon, actually, today, because I'm going to put everything into context, because all of this relates with... Um, Taiwan status and um, the relationship between the, in the 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 Communist Party, the national, the KMT, and the yes. U.S. And speaking of which, um, you know, at the time, the at even the attitude among many uh, captured uh, KMT generals in Beijing, you know, many of them who wrote memoirs years later, they actually talk about the time uh, when. Korea War first broke out in 1950. They thought that was a turning point. You know, they you know they they were sitting in the in the in the POW camp, uh, you know, in Beijing, and and they were cheering when the news of Korean War broke out because they thought that was a chance for KMT to stage a comeback and to retake. Uh, take mainland China because they thought there's no way 
that the 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 the, the PLA would be able to stand up to the U.S. military force on land, and but to their surprise, you know, Korea. To their surprise, Korea is mostly mountains, and guess what? The PLA is really good at fighting in the mountains. And that, and also, uh, you know, the, the the you know, it's also the U.S. under MacArthur seriously underestimated the capability of PLA. Um, I mean, which is understandable because PLA at the time was a mostly, uh, um, you know, a peasant force carrying small arms. They didn't have a sophisticated logistic uh, lines, you know, they only have what they can carry on their bodies, you know, usually sometimes the, the supplies only last a, a week or two, but despite... Yeah, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail okay. um, if, if we, when okay. we go let, on. Let, let's, um, let's get there, go ahead. I, I'm, the, the mic yeah. is I, I'm just trying to keep everything into, in chronological order so we don't jump around too okay. much because like, because this is like kind of we understand the context, but I feel like a lot of um, our audience yes, don't. Yes. So I'm, I'm trying to. I hope it's. I hope to keep it as simple for them as possible, or like yes, followable. Yes. So, um, yeah. So basically, the Korean People's Army liberates Seoul on the 28th of the 28th of June. So yeah, three days, three days after crossing the um, the 38th parallel, they liberate Seoul. So MacArthur determines that. The South Korean army is fucked and that it needs U.S. intervention. And he also tries to convince Truman to give Chiang Kai-shek the green light. So then Atchison convinces Truman to say no to Chiang. And if Jiang sends his troops to Korea... His reasoning was that if Chiang Kai-shek sends his troops to Korea, then Beijing will certainly get involved. And that would expand the scope of the Korean War and it'll be unpopular with the U.S.'s allies and isolate the U.S. Now, this is exactly what Chiang Kai-shek and MacArthur want, though. So you can see kind of the um, disagreements between all these different parties. Now, um, Truman says that Chiang Kai-shek's forces are to remain in Taiwan and not engage with any military action with the Chinese mainland. So Mao tells us General Chen Yi to start liberating the aforementioned offshore islands in the southeast. So on July 1st, the PLA liberates a bunch of islands. And so then on four days later, on July 5th, this is all in 1950, by the way, the U.S. sends a fleet of F-80 planes to Taiwan. And around this time, the KMT realizes that the U.S. is only patrolling the strait and preventing the PLA from going to Taiwan, but it has no intention of helping the KMT defend those islands off the coast of mainland China. So um, just as Chiang Kai-shek was prepared to retreat from Jinmen, MacArthur told Chiang that he's ready to help fight communists. So once again, Chiang Kai-shek orders his people on Jinmen to stop the retreat and stay there. And um, Mao knew that the PLA could, would not be able to defeat the U.S. Navy or Air Force because, you know, they didn't have a Navy. So on August 11th, Mao told Chen Yi to stop activities in, you know, the offshore islands. And then less than two weeks later, on August 20th, the Korean People's Army pushes South Korean forces all the way to uh, Busan, which is in the, you know, the southeast of Korea. 
And they begin carrying out land reforms and holding elections in the liberated areas. And then 10 days later, the Battle of Pusan breaks out. But And there was a problem because it was so far south that the supply line was like 300 kilometers. So the UN forces started bombing the supply line. And that results in a stalemate. And then as you know, September 15th, MacArthur lands in um, Incheon. And then... After that, on August 1st, the U.S. authorities in Tokyo tell Comrade Kim Il-sung to surrender. So uh, two days later, Kim Il-sung reaches out to China for assistance. And, you know, why did he reach out to China? Because of the promises that we talked about earlier. So then around this time, Zhou Enlai um, tells the Indian ambassador to China to tell the U.S. Because remember, the U.S. and the, the U.S. didn't have an um, have an embassy in mainland China. So they tell the Indian ambassador to tell the U.S. that if the U.S. crosses the 38th parallel, then China is not just going to sit by and let it happen. So guess what happens on August 4th? Um, the U.N. forces cross the 38th parallel. And then within a few days, the U.S. starts bombing the Yalu River Bridge. And um, what is today Dandong, which is that city that's right across from uh, Shiniju and the DPRK. If you go to the, the, the China-North Korean border today in Dandong, you can still see the half-bombed-out bridge. There's two bridges. So um, one of the bridges was repaired, and that's the bridge that you use to cross into the DPRK, whether you go by train or by bus. So I got to um, I got to travel across that bridge. But then they left the other, other bridge... Um, just kind of the way it was after it got bombed as like a reminder of the Korean War. And it's now a huge, not a huge, but it's it's a tourist attraction in Dandong. There's, Dandong's a pretty small city. There's not too much to do. So one of the things to do is to go look at North Korea and um, take boats along the, um, the Yaru River. And um, anyways, the Chinese Central Committee decides that resisting U.S. imperialism and aiding Korea was to take precedence over liberating Taiwan since because you know lib- assisting Korea was doable whereas liberating Taiwan was kind of hard without a navy or a good air force so the 9th army corps was sent from southeast china to northern china those are the people who were you know training to liberate taiwan so october 19th us occupies pyongyang and the chinese People's Volunteer Army crosses the Yalu River into Korea. It's called the Volunteer Army and not Liberation Army because because Mao did not want to, you know, declare war with the UN. So, yeah. At this time in the U.S., the Democrats um, lose the midterm election and Truman needed to end the Korean War to um, help maintain his popularity. So, um Truman and Atchison were looking for ways in the U.S. to save face, but also end full-blown war in Korea. And at that point, they pretty much settled on settled on just main, keeping half of Korea. They thought that it was that maintaining half of Korea under U.S. control was better than none in terms of U.S. public opinion and geopolitics. I mean, a total. A total retreat like what happened in Vietnam would have been the humiliating defeat. I mean, it would have been really funny on our part, but I guess from the U.S. perspective, not so much. Um, So Truman decided to limit the war in Korea and to stop sending more troops to Korea. 
And the goal was just to keep the front line at the 38th parallel while reaching an armistice agreement. And this and this process took like almost three years. So for like the latter part of the Korean War, it was mostly just like along the 38th parallel. And um, meanwhile, MacArthur wanted to expand the battlefield from Korea to the rest of Asia and in his words, eradicate communism in Asia. And Chiang Kai-shek was willing to send 500,000 troops to Korea. Now, MacArthur was ready to bomb Northeast China and then enter China with Chiang Kai-shek. But this was in violation of Truman's decision to end the Korean War. So Truman was fired. I mean, so I mean, so MacArthur was fired by Truman. MacArthur not only proposed to bomb Northeast China, he actually proposed to use about 30 nuclear weapons uh, basically to turn to cut off Manchuria from, from North Korea by turning the, the border into like a radioactive lake. Uh, of course, his crazy plan was vetoed by, by, by Truman because Truman didn't want to escalate. Is he crazy? Like the Soviet Union already had an atomic bomb. So, I mean. Yeah, exactly. So Truman didn't want to escalate a limited theater war like Korean War into like World War Three. Uh, so he was overruled and, uh, you know, MacArthur eventually got fired for insubordination. But then he still bluffed because, um, but Truman still did play the nuclear card, but he was bluffing. He, um, because um, after MacArthur was fired by Truman, you know, there were negotiations and Zhou Enlai's um, condition for ending Chinese involvement in the Korean War was for the UN to recognize the People's Republic of China as the legitimate government of China and to kick out the so-called Republic of China. The other was that the U.S. forces must leave Taiwan. So these two, you can see, were are pretty much in the um, the Shanghai Communique of 1972. And then the, uh, the third condition was that all foreign forces must leave Korea. So then Truman retaliated by saying, if the People's Volunteer Army crosses the 38th parallel, he'll drop nukes. So then, so then on December 31st of 1950, the People's Volunteer Army crosses the 38th parallel and captures Seoul. And no nukes were dropped, so we find out that Truman was bluffing. So uh, Mao, Mao wasn't, Mao's um, attitude was, if Truman meant it, he would have done it already. But although Mao wasn't shook by Truman, what did, it was, Europeans did get shook because they didn't want to die in Asia for Americans. And um, Churchill in Britain thought that if war expanded in Asia, it would weaken weaken, um, Europe's Europe's, um, defense capabilities. But then on the other end of the um, of this debate, you had Chiang Kai-shek, who did not want to end the Korean War, and he was pretty mad about Truman not letting him enter Korea. So then, you know, this goes on, and then Eisenhower was elected in 1952. Chiang Kai-shek told Eisenhower on February 1st of 1953 that the first step of ending the Korean War is to carry out Fangong Dalu, which was um, roughly translates to um, counterattack counterattack on the mainland or like the recapture of the mainland and Chiang Kai-shek's plan was to open up a second theater but Eisenhower promised the American people that he'd end the Korean War but Eisenhower does tell Chiang Kai-shek that he's free to act as he pleases in the Taiwan Strait so um 
On February 6th, the U.S. government declares an end to its Taiwan neutrality policy. And um, if Chiang Kai-shek were to launch an attack against mainland China, the Seventh Fleet would not stop him. I mean, he didn't he didn't say that like the U.S. Army would go help him fight in the mainland, but they wouldn't stop him. So then around this time, the U.S. sends a bunch of um, F-84 Thunder Jets to Taiwan in June. This was in uh, yeah 1953. And um, on July 17th, 10 days before the armistice was signed in Korea, which was um, July 27th, um, Chiang Kai-shek starts a bombing campaign on um, Dongsan Island, which is off the shore of um, Fujian. But then he gets crushed by the PLA in two days. But then um, this leads to the, um, the kind of the one of the most important points in in regards to um, Taiwan's Taiwan status and all that in the 1950s. So you want to you want to add any comment while we transition from the Korean War to the um, to the battles? I mean, I think at this time we can talk about some of Chiang Kai-shek's um, policies in Taiwan. You know, just so people kind of know what's going on inside Taiwan as well. Yeah, can you just uh, briefly talk about that while I go to the bathroom? All right, okay. go ahead. Mike is yours. Okay, so um, basically the KMT carried out land reform, which happened from 1949 to 1953. So it pretty much got rid of the big landlord class as a political force. Now, um, if you remember the last episode, Taiwan's um, class structure after after World War II was pretty much you have, you know, it was like an agrarian society. You had proletarian workers and you also had like a big landlord class, but there was not much of a national bourgeoisie. So because of because of colonial arrangements, the um, the wealthy landlord class wasn't a um it wasn't the ruling class of taiwan it it was more of like the middle management for the japanese imperialists so oh yeah i forgot to add them i think this is this doesn't need to be said but there was on there was a highly unequal distribution of land in taiwan and chiang kai-shek figured that he needed to solve that problem because that was part of part of why he got kicked out of the mainland anyways um the the old ruling class being the middle management for the Japanese people was kind of more or less continued by the KMT, but except, you know, this time as middle management for the KMT. Because, um, the, so you want to you yeah. basically take it all the way to battle of uh, Jinmen in 1958, right? Oh, I just kind of want to um, go over that too, because I didn't expect this to take this long. I didn't expect like that much, you know, background yeah. information. <laughs> So um, let's do that. Let's but, let's, let's let's take it to Battle of Jinmen. Uh, I, I don't know if we, we'll get to the Zhang Jingguo era. <laughs> to the oh yeah yeah. At this rate, I don't think we're yeah. gonna get there. But um, basically, Chiang Kai Shek during this time was carrying out land reform, and then you know there was a lot of industrial assets from the Japanese that were confiscated by the um by the so-called ROC government. And then the uh, and then you got parts of the deposed landlord class that was transformed into urban capitalists 
by compensating them with, you know, industrial property or shares in state enterprises. So if you see like some middle class people in Taiwan today who have like just for some reason, like their families have like shares of all of these companies that used to be um, that used to be owned by the state in Taiwan. This is part of the reason. So like in South Korea, the um, the so-called ROC government on Taiwan continue control the allocation of U.S. aid and the allocation of licenses and foreign exchange necessary for access to international markets. And I guess where um, Chiang Kai-shek and Park Chung-hee differed was um, Park Chung-hee nourished a small group of um, chebol, which is um, taifa, how would I say it in English, um, conglomerates. While um, Chiang Kai-shek's strategy was more or less the direct control over a number of big enterprises and heavy industry while showing a little bit less favoritism when it came to granting credit and licenses to the private sector, which explains why Taiwan has such a um, big, um, like um, small business, what is it? No, no, small to medium, has so many small to medium businesses that are, you know, that run parallel to the giant state enterprises. And we're going to get to this later on because part of the, um, part of the, the liberalization process was also the privatization of these industries um, I, I don't know so, if you um, talk about it while i was gone but uh you know because the reason kmt were able to carry out land reform which they wouldn't be able to do on the mainland is a couple reasons uh you know when 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 kmt was losing mainland they knew what the problem was they knew the PLA and the Chinese communists had the support of the peasantry for very simple reason, because, you know, the communists were carrying out land reform in the liberated areas by taking away the land from the landlord and redistributing them to the tenant farmers. But can much of the KMT's political support came from the landlord class, right? So they obviously cannot take away the land from the landlord class and distribute it to the poor peasant by destroying... Whereas Taiwan was had more or less a clean slate. Exactly. When, but when they went to Taiwan, because, you know, the, the, the support of Chiang Kai-shek resides in his control of military, all these, uh, all, all his mainland troops, the troops he brought from the mainland, right? He is not tied with the, the, the landlord class in Taiwan. In fact, you know, yep. he was able to do whatever he wanted in Taiwan because, you know, he his he, his political support does not come from the Tai Taiwanese uh, uh, landlord class. So he that that's that's why he was he can apply the lesson he learned on mainland to Taiwan without the the political baggage that he had on on, on mainland itself. But it did cause problems down the road because if you look at the people in you know the DPP today, uh, the Democratic Progressive Party, which um, it began as a uh, opposition movement against the KMT in the 1980s. But basically, a lot of the people in that party who ended up taking power are descendants of that landlord class. Yes, yes, we, we... like Tsai Ing-wen, like the current um, leader of Taiwan, she comes from that sort of background, and um, because of the certain because of the um, the poor, the poor um handling of the um, I guess the groups of people in Taiwan. It did there 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 was um not only class conflict but also like provincial conflict between you know mainlanders and the um the Taiwanese people that later um would 
would make the KMT suffer a huge blow. Now, during this time, Chiang Kai-shek carried out certain policies, like, um, for example, compulsory education and all that stuff. But he also enforced um, speaking Mandarin in school, for example. Whereas in mainland China, the introduction of Mandarin Chinese, standard Mandarin was kind of a more natural process, you know, and people started speaking it more when 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 um talking to people from different parts of China. In Taiwan, it was even until the eighties, if you spoke um if you spoke any other dialect than Mandarin, you would like you're, this is kids we're talking about, you would get fined money. Wow. I mean like and then you would all and then there was I mean yeah. like yeah it's, it's, I would it was shocking to me to hear that in Taiwan they there were uh, back in the days, there were corporate punishment in classrooms for students, uh, you know, speaking other than Mandarin. Just I, I, I'm from China, right? I was educated until I was 13 years old in 1980s China uh, on the mainland. And for, for us, you know, I grew up speaking the Chongqing dialect. And it, it's we would speak Mandarin in classrooms but after class you know outside class during the break in school we, we still use we still speak our dialect you know the only time we would literally use mandarin is when class is in session uh you know between recess and everything we revert back to uh you know our, our dialect so 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 it was kind of shocking for me to hear that they had this draconian measures in taiwan to enforce yeah and then you have you have also have funny stories because on tv there, there were three tv stations and then they also had this sort of um requirement that there needed to be um, a quota of how much mandarin how much um how many shows and programs were in mandarin per day so then you, you would see funny situations because you had some tv shows that were um that were in hokkien but then all of a sudden like just for no reason starting from a certain episode they just every, all the characters just started speaking broken mandarin because i mean a lot of the actors didn't speak mandarin well. yeah um i so i was mentioning uh, the the movie uh the the, the mainland uh, taiwan co-production uh ministry yao the knot uh it, it was i i find the movie the first half of the movie interesting because it, it show kind of show the the taiwan in the transition period uh <laughs> Post handover, and and before two two a right, and then the the only gripe I have against that movie is nobody Mandarin nobody in that, no characters in that that story should be speaking Mandarin in nineteen forty seven Taiwan. You know these these are not the people who came from mainland to Taiwan. These are the the the, the Taiwanese people in Taiwan. That's my major gripe with mainland productions because, like, if you go to like the countryside in mainland China, most people don't speak. Most people speak standard Mandarin with um accents. with heavy yes, accents. Yes. Maybe it not, might not be that heavy, but it's quite yes. noticeable. But like in TV, a lot of TV shows, like even in like the most remote regions, like they they all speak standard Mandarin like much better than either yes. of us do. <laughs> yes. I just like no, that's bullshit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes, they speak like like they're they're born and raised in Beijing all their lives. <laughs> yeah. So then Chiang Kai Shek, other policies include, you know, like I think I mentioned this. 
he wanted to prevent the rise of like working class movements. So then he, he, so then the KMT allowed labor unions to form, but they were, they had to be un, basically under control of the KMT, and like you know the general secretary, the board of directors, and all that were had to be members of the KMT, and then eventually, like I think within three years of these unions forming, like almost a fourth of the members joined the party. So basically, Chiang Kai-shek had the the bourgeoisie in his pockets. He also had the working class in his pockets. There wasn't much of a middle class yeah. at that also- point to speak of. But then that would become, that would change. And then that would be um, an important detail because the KMT didn't really prepare itself against um, against opposition from the petty yeah. bourgeoisie, which they, they, you know, the petty bourgeoisie is anti-communist partly because I mean they think they're bourgeois but also because of decades of anti-communist education oh another thing um during this time Chiang Kai-shek was um you know a lot of the soldiers in the national army were brought to Taiwan against their wills yes and um there was always the promise that okay this is just temporary we're gonna be we're gonna go back to mainland China in no time so then Chiang Kai-shek really had to up that sort of propaganda so for um for quite a while there were like signs and slogans all over the streets saying stuff like you know like and stuff like that you know which is like you know kill kill zhu and um get rid of eradicate eradicate mao um stand up against communism and stay opposed to russia and we're going to recapture the mainland. They had all that, and then there were also slogans. Have you heard of um the the Fan Gong Dalu plan? Like the the slogans no. for that. <laughs> so year one, we we use we prepare for a year. So second year we launch the counterattack. Third year we sweep we sweep the communists wow. away. So he had he had a five year plan of retaking the mainland, but he knew it was bullshit. But it was basically to um keep the soldiers that he tricked to Taiwan to yeah to um rise up against him because soldiers being pissed off at you was a very bad yeah, I idea. Mean, it, for people because, who are uh, not familiar with this period of China, the the KMT army is not a volunteer army. Okay, it's a conscription based army. Like the people were were literally uh, a press gang into join the army back in you know back on the mainland even during the there were some there were some that um joined voluntarily a lot of them be- during the the war against yes. Japan so a lot of them voluntarily joined because you know they they loved their country they wanted to fight they wanted to fight the Japanese but then when the civil war got really desperate in the 40s but what you, you hear a lot of stories like the kids parents would send their kids to go buy soy sauce and then they would never go home because they got kidnapped by yes. the army yes and 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 this also happened along like like we talk about the KMT control a lot of the offshore islands of China and and when the KMT finally evacuated they forced uh, the basically the civilian population to go with them yeah, we're gonna get into that with um with Zha Da Chen because that that might be um when we talk about the um, Battle of Jinmen that was the whole the every single person on this one island was brought over to Taiwan. Also, I like um, to um, point out a lot of the new economic policies 
that Chiang Kai-shek carried out in Taiwan was kind of uh, supervised by his son, Jiang Jingguo. And Jiang... Who was educated in exactly. the Soviet Union. Jiang Jingguo was sent to Soviet Union in uh, 1920s, in the 1920s, when back when, um, when the KMT was still officially cooperating with Soviet Union and it was basically being financed and supported by the Soviet Union. So Jiang Jingguo was sent over to study in Soviet Union. And, but then, you know, in, then 1927, his dad, uh, Jiang Kai-shek, carried out the purge of communists in Shanghai. And then Jiang Jingguo was kind of stuck. And he actually lived in, I think he lived over for more than, he lived over a decade in Soviet Union. He, he was married. Yeah, he married he married his wife yeah. over there, um, Jiang yeah, Fangliang. Married, uh, I forgot her, uh, Fina, I, her, her name was Fina, yeah, right? In, Fina, uh, in, uh, Russian. Uh, she's a Belarusian, I think. And yeah, yeah, she is. She is Belarusian. So for a while, Taiwan had a um, had a Soviet so-called first yes, lady. Yes, and and uh, and uh, because for ten years, um, Jiang Jingguo he actually joined the Communist Party of Soviet Union. You know, he was a trot for a little yes, bit. Yes, yeah, that too. <laughs> yes, and uh, so I mean, he was Fucking he trots. grew up, you know in Soviet Union with like five year plans and, and control economy. And, and he basically applied what he learned uh, partially in Taiwan. You know, a lot of- The thing is, with if you're a communist, people who extensively study, you know, Marx and Lenin, they have a really good understanding of how power relations work and how class relations work. And I mean, if... If you're in a position of power and you have capital and you have all that stuff, understanding the theories of Marx makes makes you an even better capitalist. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so okay, so let's let's go go rush toward uh, Battle of Jinmen, the the climax of our show. Okay, so um, do 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 do. Let me look scroll into my notes. Okay, so. 1952 is when is kind of like a turning point for the KMT. So we're going, we're kind of back. Um, what's that word? Backtracking a little bit. USA to Taiwan increases. And an uh, interesting anecdote is um during the time of USA, you know, there would be like there would be like bags of like I don't, I don't know like flour or whatever, and those bags would say US aid, and obviously, and then poorer families would use those bags to um to like make clothes for their children. So you pretty much had like little kids walking around with the words USA on their butts. And, and then anyways, um, white terror in Taiwan was ramped up the, um, the streets of Taipei, you know, train stations, bus stations, all had lists of people executed by the KMT. And you didn't even have to be a communist to be executed by the KMT. You just had to be suspected of being one or just be pretty much anti-government. You'll, you'll be called yeah. a communist if for like whatever, so I mean, my 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 uncle came up with a joke saying that when he was a kid and he didn't know the answers of a test, he would just write um, "三民主义, 统一中国," or "You reunify China under the three principles of the people." And if his teacher marked him wrong, his teacher would be would be shot by Chiang, Chiang Kai Shek. <laughs> he didn't actually do that, but it's, yeah, no, no, it's entertaining. Oh, and yeah. um, movie movie theaters back then in Taiwan were pretty interesting. Um. 
before a movie played in the movie theater, a message would show up on the screen saying, um, or roughly translates to, um, kill communist collaborators. Um, and then from, from 1950 to 1954, like there was like another, like kind of huge purge and suspected or actual communists that were both um Bensheng or Waisheng or like you know Taiwanese or like of mainland background were executed or imprisoned. Oh, so, speaking um, of which, you know, like uh, the Denghui, right? The 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 later the the so called first local Taiwanese uh, president uh, got elected in nineteen nineties. He uh, in the in the Taiwanese election, he was um. He actually joined the Communist Party for a brief moment on Taiwan after... In 1946. Yeah. yeah. It was via a front group called um, Taiwan Minzu Zizhi Tongmeng, which is... Um, how do you translate that? Um, uh, the, uh, I guess, alliance... For democratic uh, for the, the, or, or, of or Taiwan. Autonomy. Yeah. 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 Which was created by Xie Xuehong. This the um the communist woman we talked yeah, about Shepion earlier, and like it was the founder, right? He, well, he's she's the founder she, and the the leader of the Taiwanese Communist Party. Yeah, it was under the directive of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist yeah. Party. Yeah, yeah, and um, oh yeah, I also have in my in my notes I mentioned on uh, Tsai Xiaoqian. Anyways, he quits the um the Communist Party in nineteen. Li Denghui quits the Communist Party in nineteen forty seven, and then um Cai Xiaoqian and Li Denghui promised to each other to um keep his involvement in the party a secret, wow. and then Li Denghui claims that he never sold out the communists to Taiwan, but the KMT had a very comprehensive intelligence sure. network, and for him to have gotten to such a high level in the KMT would have meant that Jiang Jingguo, who incidentally was the head of the secret police for a while, huh. Would have obviously looked through his files very carefully, yeah. and Jiang Jingguo actually had Li Denghui tell him personally about how he joined and quit the party. So, are we going to really believe that he earned Jiang Jingguo and Jiang, Jiang Jingguo's trust without selling out the communists? Because the law back then was that anyone who has participated in a communist organization is presumed to still be an active member un- unless proven yes. otherwise. And how do you prove otherwise? Like your word doesn't mean shit. You have to prove through action that you're no longer a communist. Yes. And we, I, I think we're. I'm gonna get into this later when we talk about more okay. modern times. How he's the Judas among uh, among Judases. Yes. yes. Okay. But um. Yeah. Anyways, um. The KMT and the U.S. enters like this honeymoon period, um. When Eisenhower gets elected, because Eisenhower says that the U.S. will defend Taiwan from communist attack. So then they signed the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty. And the treaty explicitly says that only Taiwan and Penghu are under the protection of the U.S. Another name for Penghu, by the way, is the Pescadores. Jinmen, Mazu, and Dachen are not protected by the Seventh Fleet. And now, and there was a series of... um. This was um the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty. But the Sino over here, by the way, means um the 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 administration on Taiwan because that was recognized by the U.S. as the legitimate government of all of China. Still, now it was a part of it was a series of three treaties, and the other two are 
the mutual defense treaty between the United States and Korea. By Korea, they mean South Korea. And then there was also the Southeast Asian Collective Defense Treaty, which created CETO. So Mao correctly saw that mainland China was a target of U.S. encirclement. So from 1950 until the Battle of Jinmen, the Taiwan authorities launched um, many attacks on mainland China from Jinmen, Mazu, and Dachen, with support from, like, tacit support from the U.S. So then in 1954, Chiang Kai-shek sets up a commission called, um, what is it? Guangfu Dalu Seji Yanjoi which is um, the planning commission for the recovery of the mainland. He had, he had some pretty good names for all of his, like, he had some very oddly specific commissions, I must, I must say. So then um, Mao thought that it was the right time to engage, like, once again. So he tells um, Zhou Enlai, who was at the Geneva conference, to um, reiterate Taiwan's, I mean, to reiterate China's position that Taiwan is a part of China and that China must liberate Taiwan. Now we're going to see that this view kind of shifts in mainland China. Like the the view that Taiwan is a part of China never changes in in Beijing, but the means of reunification and their idea of reunification does change over time. Now on August first, the um the commander in chief Zhu De says that the Chiang Kai-shek clique must be eradicated in order for Taiwan to be liberated. And the Central Central Committee agrees with the statement. So at this time, Beijing reiterates that the issue of Taiwan's liberation is a domestic issue of China's and that foreign powers should fuck off. And September 3rd, 1954, the so-called ROC's delegate at the UN... Um, What's his face? Jiang Tingfu. Is that his name? Yeah. Talks about how the PLA has already begun shelling Jinmen from um, Xiamen. And interesting side note, if you ever go to Jinmen, one thing you need to buy is um, a knife made there because um, the PLA sh- like shot sh- so many shells over there that they had so much metal that they didn't know what to do with it. So the people who lived in Jinmen just started making knives with them. I... Just going back track a little bit to support what you said about, you know, the 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 Korean War and and U.S. Seventh Fleet basically altered the 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 the, the, the plans for Taiwan. Is that even though KMT control a lot of the out, out, offshore islands, you know, by May. Uh, 1950, the PLA already uh, liberated, started to liberate the Highland Islands. You know, the other, the second largest island in China, right? That you know, like the, yeah. of course, the 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 the, the, the Strait separating Highland Islands and the Guangdong Province is not as wide wide as a high, Highland uh, as a Taiwan Strait, but that was kind of like. Um, a practice ground for PLA to do doing the amphibious landing and and to liberate a large large <laughs> island, uh, but but like that was immediately just before the Korean War broke out because Korean War broke out the following yeah. month in June nineteen fifty. I think Korean volunteers were involved in the liberation of Hainan. Yes, yes, because um, because. Uh, you know, Lin Biao's army, which, uh, you know, the first field army was 
uh, originally from Manchuria. The 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 the, the, the uh, Lin, Lin Biao had uh, almost a million army under his command uh, in 1949 when he liberated entire Manchuria, and and Lin Biao led those million men basically. Uh, across the entire China, and they were responsible. The first field army, which uh, you know mostly came from Manchuria, were responsible for liberating uh, Guangdong province, right? So they t- took uh, took a uh, part in in uh, liberating Guangzhou, and so Highland was under their kind of theater operation. So 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 they 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 were responsible for that. So so the Korean. Um, the Koreans uh, attached to the PLA, they are part of that group, part of the Lin Biao's uh, 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 first field army. Yeah. And for the listeners who are trying to, um, who might be looking things up as we speak, um, it's hai- Hainan. You're, you're not going to find the battle if you spell it the way um, Carl's pronouncing it with his heavy um, Chongqing accent. <laughs> <laughs> he, he tends to get his N's and L's mixed up. So um, there's there's no in, there's not much of an N sound in um southwestern Mandarin. So um, basically it's H A I N A N. Okay, yeah, not H A I L A N. Man, this is what. Yeah, the way you say um, the way you say Henan makes it sound like you're talking about the oh, Dutch. Oh yeah, yeah, that, Henan, that's Henan. actually a joke on the Chinese internet too. Like they people just use yeah. uh, Netherlands uh, in place of uh the province of Henan because you know people from southwest like Sichuan we we don't. We don't distinguish our our nasal N and L, right? Like we really, we're it's all L for us. There's no N, like I see Nancy. It's all like land, like land party. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyways, it's not an attack. I, I like I like your dialogue. I think you, people automatically sound cooler if they speak Southwestern Mandarin, but unfortunately, I, I don't speak it. <laughs> I can imitate it, but I don't speak it. But um, basically, September 5th, the People's Daily, which is the party newspaper in mainland China, releases an editorial called um, Message to Compatriots on Taiwan, calling for the Taiwanese people to fight for liberation. And on that day, Dulles from the U.S. goes to Taipei to talk with um, Chiang Kai-shek. And then the U.S. sends 17 warships from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And then later that month... The um the so-called ROC's Navy and Air Force began operations strafing coastal areas and offshore islands offshore islands of Fujian, Zhejiang, and Guangdong. Now, uh, just to give a little bit more international geopolitical back- background, <laughs> so by 1958, you know, Stalin already died. Khrushchev arrived to take power in Soviet Union. Oh yes, yeah, this is and, important. And Khrushchev's uh, main uh, diplomatic maneuver is. He uh, proposed to reach a, a understanding, right, with United States. Like he, he's not for world revolution, like Mao was. Uh, he was uh, more about okay, we can develop uh, socialism within the borders of so- Soviet Union and the existing communist countries. You know, we don't need to, we don't need to uh, 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 have like a. Uh, World War Three with United States, but Mao he started pushing, and he kind of like he kind of caused a lot of confusion in the socialist yeah. sphere because he started pushing the idea that, for example, 
the Soviet Union was no longer a dictatorship of the proletariat, and it was a um, people's democracy, and that there is no more class conflict yeah. within socialist countries. And he also talked about how um, the international situation is different, and that um, these democratic countries, these bourgeois democratic countries, can arrive at socialism through peaceful means right. and stuff I mean, like that. I, and he also, I mean, Mao solidified his power by just, just um, just totally um discrediting stalin yes. and that by extension that i kind of that was of so then at that point mao was thinking okay so what does he think of china and what are his attitudes towards i china? mean the, the his the differences a personal difference between khrushchev and mao eventually led to you know sino-soviet split but before that uh you know in 1958 at this juncture you know officially on the surface, you know, China and Soviet Union still in honeymoon phase. But while, you know, U.S. is kind of uh, carrying out all these warlike efforts uh, against China with its base on Taiwan, you know, the Khrushchev is personally extending an olive branch to the U.S. government. And, and Mao was not, uh, was not pleased with that. So he took that opportunity uh to to shout to to launch the battle of Jinmen, basically, and he did it right after Khrushchev had visited him. So the U.S. was thinking, was Khrushchev yes, involved? Yes, he he Mao. Even though Khrushchev was really eager to to reach a understanding with U.S., but but Mao took the opportunity while while Khrushchev was visiting China to to launch the battle of Jinmen to to make U.S. think that you know the U China and the Soviet Union are actually coordinating together. Yeah, Khrushchev was so yes, pissed. Yes, he was not pleased. I mean, I mean, all, yeah, all these so... con- all, all these uh, conflict between. Him and Mao eventually would blow up into a Sino-Soviet split, but this is kind of like the beginning, beginning of the 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 conflict of interest, right? Because Khrushchev wants to have a pursue co peaceful coexistence with the West, with the with the U.S. But but Mao is like, oh wait a minute, we haven't achieved our national liberation yet, you know? Like the Taiwan is still <laughs> Taiwan still hasn't been liberated. What do you mean, you know? We- and Khrushchev, you should let our you should let our um, scientists go look at your nuclear designs. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. And Khrushchev was like, "No, no, we're, you know what? We're just gonna get rid of all of our technicians. <laughs> From we're just gonna send them back to the Soviet Union and not help you guys." So anymore. yeah. So anyway, so that's a little yeah. little sidetrack uh, for for little, little yeah. Little, it's yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, the U.S.'s attitudes towards China was that w- the U.S. was eager to um part of why Mao did that was because the US was eager to um exploit contradictions between China and the Soviet Union and they believed that if China could somehow be won over towards at least if if it could stop being a Soviet ally then it could be part of a plan to you know surround the Soviet Union and you know because the Soviet Union was still the U.S.'s number one number one enemy at that time. So, anyways, um, when the when the Navy and Air Force in Taiwan start these operations, the U.K. and Canada call for the U.S. to return to Truman's policy of maintaining Taiwanese neutrality and to prevent Taiwan from becoming a hot war zone. And um, but at this point, Mao had um another idea. 
he, his um actions against Taiwan were a message to the world. And it's it was like a protest against their attempted isolation of China. So because at this time at this time various various solutions were being suggested at the UN from you know formal Taiwan independence which would involve recognizing the People's Republic of China as the legitimate government of China and to create an independent republic on Taiwan or a state called Chinese Formosa or once again UN trusteeship which you know advocate the line of Taiwan's undetermined status and have the UN govern Taiwan for a while another one the funniest one one and a half Chinas was a, was also another suggestion, which was essentially to make Taiwan a vassal state of the PRC. Which, um, actually, if you look at it, it's kind of similar to the one country, two system solution in Hong Kong. But the difference is Taiwan under this solution gets to represent itself independently in foreign affairs. Which I guess Joshua Wong would be really happy. But um, and then there's also another solution, which is um the two successor state solution, which is to recognize both the PRC and the so-called ROC as successor successor countries of the um the ROC and to let let them both be considered um founding members of the United Nations. Now um Dulles suggested having the PRC on the Security Council and the so-called ROC Various solutions were being suggested at the UN at the time. One of them being formal Taiwan independence, which is to recognize the PRC as a legitimate government of China and to create an independent republic on, on Taiwan or a state called Chinese Formosa. 